Hello and welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast developed by the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In today's podcast, an introduction to teen dating violence for family planning clinicians, our guest is Liz Miller, MD, PhD. Dr. Miller is a professor of pediatrics and public health at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine with over two decades of experience in addressing interpersonal violence among adolescents from both clinical and research perspectives. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Miller. We're so excited to speak with you today. Catherine, I am so thrilled to be here and thank you for having me, but also really marking the importance of teen dating violence awareness. Well, we are so excited to have you. So just to begin, can you define teen dating violence for our audience and give us an idea of some of the forms it can take? Catherine, I am a storyteller. So I am going to answer the question of tell us about what teen dating violence is by taking you through how I learned about teen dating violence myself. So I am a pediatrician and also an internal medicine trained, so meaning that I was trained to take care of both children and adults, and I have a special passion for taking care of young people. So I was volunteering one night a week in a clinic serving young people, primarily young people experiencing marginalization and minoritization, so young people who were unstably housed, young people who were system-involved. So the clinic was located in a drop-in center for young people who are unstably housed, young people who are system involved. And a 15-year-old young person came in seeking a pregnancy test. This female-identified person said, you know, I'm not interested in being pregnant. I don't want to be pregnant and turned out to not be using any contraception. And the pregnancy test was negative. I assumed that this young person needed to be educated about her birth control options. And I pulled out my beautiful laminated cards with all of our different options and kind of started going through my little soliloquy that I think many of our family planning colleagues know very well. She very politely nodded through my lecture. And then along the way, I asked the adult domestic violence screening question, do you feel safe in your relationship? She looked at me like I had three heads. And I said, well, can you get your boyfriend to use condoms? And she said, sometimes. And I said, well, here's some condoms to take along with you. It's really important that you talk to him about using condoms every time. And when you're ready to decide what you want to use for birth control, why don't you come back and see me? I'm here every Thursday evening. Two weeks later, I got a call from our emergency room saying, Dr. Miller, we think we have one of your patients here. And this young person has sustained a severe head injury, having been pushed down the stairs by her boyfriend. It was really, not to exaggerate, a cataclysmic event for me that now 22 years ago, right, is what launched my research career and my commitment to doing and thinking and imagining a world in which we can help young people feel safer And to be able to talk to them about healthy relationships in a way that takes us beyond screening questions. We have shifted our language away from teen dating violence 
because we also recognized that even in the early adolescent years, so we're talking middle school, 10, 11, 12-year-olds in those preteen years, that young people are already inundated with hypersexual images, the importance of romantic relationships, and so forth, while simultaneously developmentally starting to explore their own identity. And so the middle school years are incredibly important. So focusing on adolescence, right, across from early adolescence into young adulthood is absolutely critical. We use the term relationships rather than dating because one of the things that we've learned is young people don't date. They see each other, they talk to each other, they hang out with each other, they hook up with each other. And there's so many other ways in which young people talk about their relationships. Finally, we use the word abuse rather than violence. And it has much to do with the fact that reproductive coercion, as an example, is much more around coercing somebody to get pregnant when they don't want to be. But there's also a whole range of ways in which social media and digital technology is being used for abuse and control. And while a partner may not necessarily be laying their hands on somebody, the emotional and psychological abuse is extremely important to underscore. And that's why we use the term adolescent relationship abuse instead of teen dating violence to really open up a space for a conversation across adolescence and into young adulthood. You discussed physical violence, physical abuse, reproductive coercion, ways that these situations can mirror what we would call adult intimate partner violence. But what makes adolescent relationship abuse more distinct or what are the differences it has from adults? Because as we all know, adolescence is a very particular period in a person's life. So I'm going to answer that two ways. One is probably the obvious one, which is that adolescence is the second most dynamic developmental period in our life course next to infancy. So the brain is doing unbelievable amounts of growth. There's incredible opportunity for exploring one's identity, exploring relationships, thinking about how one wants to chart the career and you know, future orientation. And you know, there's a reason that I'm an adolescent clinician. I love working with and learning from young people. So what makes adolescent relationship abuse quite distinct is that there is this continuous exploration that is going on. And while there may be an impulse to say to young people, no dating, none of that. You, you just are too young for that. What we really need to be able to do as adults, and in particular adults who are there to support young people, is to give them the scaffolding to be able to understand the distinction between healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships understand some of the gray areas, and most importantly, to know and strengthen their support network so that they know who they can reach out to with questions and for advice and the like. One of the questions I'm often asked is like, 
how big a problem is this, right? Is it really that prominent and so forth? And we are super fortunate in the U.S. that our Centers for Disease Control and Prevention do a remarkable job in terms of surveillance and surveying and monitoring what's going on across the general population. The Youth Risk Behavior Survey has now for over a decade been asking questions. And this is a survey that is done with high school students across the country and is done to be a nationally representative survey. And what we know from the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, they ask specifically about sexual violence in the past 12 months in the context of a dating relationship, and the same for physical violence. And what we see in this national data is that about one in five female-identified high school-age students and about one in 10 high school-age male-identified students report experiencing sexual violence or physical violence at the hands of a partner in the past year. The part that is so hard for those of us who've really committed our lives to prevention and intervention work to reduce adolescent relationship abuse is that we've had a really hard time moving that needle and we have a lot more work to do. When we include questions about emotional abuse, psychological abuse, including cyber dating abuse, sexual coercion, reproductive coercion. It gets closer to over 60% of young people saying they've ever experienced this. So what that tells us is two things. You know, adolescent relationship abuse is a thing and we really need to do something about this. And we know that if we address it in adolescence, that we're less likely to have intimate partner violence into adulthood. So the idea, of course, of prevention is so important. But the other, when you get numbers like over 60%, right, is this issue of to what extent does unhealthy behavior in relationships become the norm? To what extent, right, is this kind of part of what young people sort of expect, like that's kind of the way in which people behave, that jealousy and possessiveness are signs of true love. And how do we work to shift those misperceptions about the ways in which relationships work? And one of the real challenges for us in this country is that to do this kind of healthy relationships education well It needs to be done in the context of comprehensive sexual health education as well. And it is absolutely vital that when we're talking about sexuality, that we begin at that place of healthy relationships and meaningful communication and understanding one's personal boundaries. So to elaborate a little bit on prevalence some more, Are particular populations of adolescents at higher risk for abuse? And what kind of are those risk factors or populations? Catherine, I really appreciate this question around what are particular populations, what particular groups of young people who we need to be even more concerned about. Thus far in our conversation, I've tended to use pretty cisgender, pretty heteronormative language. 
And while, you know, using language around female identified, male identified, let's get real, right? So much of our research has focused in cisgender, heterosexual, you know, relationships. What is really heartbreaking is that we are learning much more about the ways in which young people who are transgender, non-binary, gender diverse, as well as young people who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual. So young people who in public health language, we say are sexual and gender minority, experience higher prevalence of relationship abuse. Why that is, what the context is, I will tell you that I have amazing research colleagues across the country really puzzling on this together and doing some really phenomenal work. And I hope that we are going to be able to get to a place, right, where we can really understand how to tailor our prevention approaches. In addition, there are some studies that show that young people who identify as Black and African American, who identify as American Indian, Alaska Native, who identify as Hispanic or from the Latin community, that young people from minoritized and marginalized communities are exposed to more physical, sexual, and emotional violence in the context of their relationships. These are young people who are also exposed to inordinate amounts of structural inequities and inordinate levels of community violence, inordinate level of disparity in the context of this COVID-19 pandemic, and deeply embedded systemic and institutional racism that make young people more vulnerable to exposure to violence. So it is really, really critical when we talk about who's at risk that we actually shift the conversation away from individual level factors to these more structural and systemic factors that result in young people having inequitable access to resources, inequitable access to prevention, that inequitable access to supports and services and the ways in which racism and marginalization and discrimination in this country is to make it harder for young people experiencing marginalization to even seek care, which is why I think it's so critical for health professionals in the family planning setting to be really thoughtful about what we need to do to build our trustworthiness and to really do more thoughtful outreach, make sure that our environments are inclusive and welcoming where young people know that we can safely talk about their sexual orientation, safely talk about their gender identity in a way that really creates an opportunity for us to do that universal education that I was talking about earlier. So when seeing these adolescent patients, I go back to your story where you asked this young woman if she felt safe at home and she looked at you like you sprouted a second head. So what are other signs that clinicians can be alert to or good ways to bring this up for adolescents, you mentioned using different language. It's not dating. It's within the context of relationships or other things like that. What are some other methods that clinicians should keep in mind? 
I am often asked by health professionals, like, what are some of the warning signs? What should I be paying attention to? You know, are there ways, you know, really that wanting to screen for, right? Is there a good question I can ask? And that is why I shared with you this much more universal education approach, because it's actually kind of hard to tell. And that many of our patients, in fact, in my, you know, almost 30 years of doing clinical work now, I have never had a patient walk in say, hi, Dr. Liz, I'm in an abusive relationship and I need help, right? It's just not going to happen. That said, what do we as family planning providers need to be paying attention to? One is remember the story that I told you about this young person coming in for a pregnancy test who said she didn't want to be pregnant and she wasn't using birth control. Remember that I slipped very quickly into, aha, she needs to be educated on her contraceptive options. And perhaps that was true. But I also needed to think to myself, could this young person be experiencing reproductive coercion? Like, would it have made a difference if while I was doing her pregnancy test, I say, you know, when young people come in wanting a pregnancy test because they don't want to be pregnant and they're not using birth control, sometimes it's because somebody else wants them to get pregnant and they don't want to get pregnant. Is that part of your story? And it's not that I'm pushing the young person for a disclosure. They don't have to say, yeah, that's happening to me. What I'm doing is planting the seed. And similarly, a young person who keeps coming in for repeat requests for STI testing or frequent requests for emergency contraception, or I lost my pill pack, right? All of those should give us pause and remind us to be sure that in every single patient visit, we're offering information about healthy relationships and reproductive coercion, because sometimes it's hard to tell. But those would be some examples of things where providers in particular in family planning clinic settings can pay attention to. Another complicating factor with adolescents is many of them live with parents or guardians still. And while all the states have different laws and guidelines around this, what are some general things to keep in mind if a clinician sees a patient and there appears to be a way to involve the family or how to encourage a patient to involve family support if that's safe. Catherine, what you're getting to is the heart of adolescent medicine. One of the single most important protective factors for a young person is a connection to a safe adult. And one of the things that I impress upon learners who come through our adolescent clinic is that one of the things that we have to do during that clinical encounter is really think about who are the social supports for that young person and help that young person really identify those safe people in their lives. And it is also true that confidentiality is absolutely critical for getting young people in our front doors. And that research has been done well over two decades ago now and continues to, you know, in subsequent studies to be true. One of the single most important factors for supporting care seeking for young people is the provision of confidential services. So it's both and. 
We have to create safe environments for young people where they know that their privacy will be honored, that we are comfortable providing confidential services, while simultaneously we are talking to them about the limits of confidentiality and really thinking about who the safe adults are in their life that they can talk to about these things. Now, often health professionals will ask me, about, well, how do you do the reporting and so forth? And what I will say is, number one, you need to know your state laws really, really well. The people who know your state laws really well are also victim service advocates. So count them in as part of your expert lifeline, right, of people to call saying, hey, can I run something by you? But the piece to remember is that these laws that are you know, there for us to call child protective services to keep a you know minor safe, are there specifically, right, around safety for minors. And while imperfect, that is what I really impress upon young people. In fact, I tell my learners they should never use the word report in the context of a clinical encounter. Because of course, when you say the word report, what does a young person think? They're like, I'm in trouble. I did something bad. You're going to tell my mom, I'm going to get grounded. That's what report feels like. And it feels so punitive. But it's very, very different when I say to a young person, remember at the start of our visit, I shared with you that there are some times where I need to get other adults involved because I'm worried about a young person's safety. And this is one of those instances. And I want you to be a part of this process of pulling in those other adults so that we can work together to keep you as safe as possible. And that's a really, really different way in which we can approach our requirements around safety for minors. So to change tack a little bit, you mentioned very, very briefly the role of technology or cyber violence, that sort of thing. Have you seen trends around adolescent relationship abuse being affected by things like social media, digital communications, or seemingly almost constant connectivity to the digital world? And what role does that play? So the term that, you know, we know in adolescence as digital natives, right? These are young people who have grown up in a digital world for whom social media and ever-changing social media is part of their lives, right? It's also a mode for communication. It's a mode for exploration, right? So not all social media is bad, it turns out, and is here to stay, that this is a way in which young people communicate with each other. In fact, I find it a little bit funny that asking the young adults in my life to actually make a phone call is considered anathema, right? They're like, what do you want me to do, right? Because it is so much through texting and other social media platforms. So of course, then power and control, abuse and relationships is going to show up, right, in the context of technology. And so in my mind, I really try not to sort of distinguish between what's going on in the cyberspace and what's going on in person, because we do know that cyber dating abuse is prevalent and it's harmful, right? And that it is really, really important, certainly for parents and adult caregivers to be 
helping young people navigate the cyber world. The challenge for parents is that they never had to do this. And so it is really incumbent on us who are doing prevention work to give parents school teachers, administrators, right, youth after school programs, the tools to be able to talk to young people about healthy relationships and healthy communication in the context of a digital world. So we've talked about a lot today, but of course, we're only just tapping the surface. Where are some good resources or organizations, clinicians who are looking to either learn more about adolescent relationship violence to which they can refer their adolescent patients. So I have a few favorite places, right, to direct people. And one that I mentioned earlier is loveisrespect.org. And that is what we call our teen dating violence, teen dating abuse hotline that also has a 24-7 chat. Additionally, Resources for health professionals are available through the national nonprofit violence prevention organization called Futures Without Violence. Earlier, I talked about providing universal education in the context of our clinical visits, and Futures Without Violence has created beautiful and really helpful palm sized educational cards including cards that are relevant for young people who've been exposed to violence, young people who identify as transgender non-binary, young people who identify as sexual minority, that we are really trying to be as inclusive as possible in the development of these educational material. And so those are two resources. In addition, there are resources like the Trevor Project, which while focused on suicide prevention, they are also very well equipped in supporting young people who identify as sexual and gender minority and navigating the complexity of relationships in that context as well. There are so many others to share with you, but I would start there. Wonderful. Well, it's been fantastic and so informative to talk with you today. Our time is running short. So before you go, what would be your top takeaway for our clinician listeners going forward as they return to their practice? So what I would say to my colleagues is number one, thank you. Thank you for doing the work that you do because you showing up for work and creating safe and supportive environments for our young patients is what makes the difference. I hope that what I've shared with you today gives you a sense of hope and a sense of control in that there is something that you can do through universal education, through encouraging young people to know about existing resources and supports that are out there that you have the ability to make sure that you reduce the sense of isolation that so many of our patients experience and increase their options for safety. So I am immensely grateful, Catherine, for the chance to spend some time today talking with you, sharing with you, learning with you. And I really look forward to ongoing conversation. Likewise, Dr. Miller, thank you for coming on the podcast today and for sharing your time and expertise with us. 
For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for The Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on social media, on our Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers established and funded by the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees and service sites. This podcast is supported by DHHS grant number one, FPTPA 006031-01-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement of DHHS OASH and or OPA for opinions or products described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of the Family Planning Pod. 